actor and a rabbi walk into a podcast? No, actually. You might know Josh Molina as David in The American President, Will Bailey in The West Wing, Jeremy Goodwin in Sports Night, Attorney General David Rosen in Scandal, or Caltech President Siebert in Big Bang Theory. And you might have read Rabbi Shira Stutman at Six and I Synagogue in D.C. Together, they're bringing Torah study to a whole new audience, and they're here today to talk to us about podcasting, people, politics, and more. Don't push pause. You're listening to the Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Jared Bernstein. My co-host, Rich Goldberg, is on assignment this week. He will be back shortly. I got to be honest with you. I am really excited for our guest today. Huge West Wing fan, huge early Aaron Sorkin fan. In fact, I rewatch the West Wing yearly like it's the Torah, front to back, and then start over. I've always connected with Will Bailey, policy wonk slash communications type, and a military reservist. Can't be more excited. We also have one of the leading voices in the rabbinate today, Rabbi Shira Stutman, going to drop some knowledge on us and hopefully keep Josh Molina and I in line. Josh Molina made his professional acting debut in the Broadway production of A Few Good Men, written by Aaron Sorkin. Josh went on to star as Jeremy Goodwin in Sorkin's critically acclaimed television series Sports Night. He worked with Sorkin once again on The West Wing, joining the cast in the fourth season as Will Bailey. On the big screen, he appeared in Bullworth, In the Line of Fire, A View from the Top, among others. More recently, Joshua stars as U.S. Attorney General David Rosen in ABC's hit TV show Scandal, President Siebert in The Big Bang Theory. He can be seen as Arthur Tipping in the final season of Shameless, and he's now the co-host of Chutzpod, which we'll be talking about in a minute. Rabbi Shira Stutman is the founding rabbi of Six and I Synagogue in Washington, D.C. She teaches and speaks nationally on topics including growing welcoming Jewish spiritual communities, building the connective tissues between different types of people, and the current American Jewish community zeitgeist. She's also writing a book on the blessing of interfaith couples. She was named one of America's most inspiring rabbis by the Jewish Forward, and she also is a co-host of Chutzpod. Josh, Rabbi, welcome to the podcast. Let's start with your new podcast, Chutzpod. Rabbi, what was the impetus for doing this, and why pitch the legendary Josh Molina to be your co-host? Oh, well, the second question is the easier question. I mean, Josh is the best. Josh is like, Josh is the full package, we like to say. You know, he's kind, he's smart, he's funny, and he cares a lot about Judaism. So that was sort of like a no-brainer. Um, we had met a few times uh, at Sixth and I, where I used to work, and we had uh, gone on a four-day program to Israel and the West Bank, where we had learned a lot from each other. So the, why the podcast? Um, there are a few answers. There are personal answers, but I think there are also more sort of like global answers. And I'm going to start with that, which is, you know, we are in this moment, this COVID moment, this politically polarized moment. And I don't even think that we human beings fully understand the, the transitions that are happening all around us yet. But one thing that we do know to be true, because this started even before COVID, is that People are accessing spirituality in new and in, in different ways than they might have 50 years ago. Um, synagogue membership is going down. Church attendance in a, is going down, right? It's not just the Jews. And we are understanding spirituality also in a way that's a little bit more wide and not confined to the four walls of any one building such as it is. And so, you know, Josh and I, um, we sort of 
understood that and wanted to play with it a little bit. If people are getting their spirituality in different ways, maybe one way they can learn and access something greater than themselves is over the, what are we, are they still called the airwaves if it's a podcast and not a radio show, right? Over the airwaves while they're taking a run. Or or the interwebs. Over the interwebs. (laughs) You know, while they're taking a run on a Saturday morning or while they're doing the dishes. These are all actually... Um, moments that are not just mundane, they could also be profound. Good answer. Good answer. And, and Josh, you uh, are a good answer. Right? Josh, you're a Jewish day school graduate, right? I am indeed. Westchester Day School Prep. Okay, well, there you go. Shout out to Westchester Day School. What is your view of the Jewish day school system today? Uh, you know, I, I would like to give a good answer to that, but I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert in the area because in part of an early conversation with my wife about educating our own children in which she said i don't think we're going to be sending them to day school and i was like well why I, not that i was decided on the matter but uh, i thought it was a possibility and she said well I, you know i don't want them to grow up you know in a bubble and sort of uh you know n- not exposed to the greater world i said honey i went to day school do i seem sheltered and 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 like i grew up in a bubble and she said yes <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, I said, oh, oh, okay. So all I can say is having gone to day school in the 70s and 80s, uh, it was a wonderful experience for me. I feel like a, a big part of who I am today, and especially who I am as a Jew, which is the cornerstone of my identity, is a result of very positive experience uh, as a kid at, at an Orthodox day school. I don't know really what that world is like now. I only really know my own experience. And Rabbi, you've talked about this concept of radical welcoming, right? And so could you explain that to us and, and why it's your mantra? Because it, it really struck home with me, but I want to hear it from, from in your words, if that's possible. Yeah, yeah. You know, by the way, and as a day school grad also myself, I am also someone who didn't send my kids to day school. <laughs> oh, I just, okay. I, uh, but I, I, I could not, um, also because of my partner. Josh, we really need to get our partners together. I don't know. I just feel like they have a lot in common. I cannot overstate the importance of the, my Jewish day school education on who I am and, and my siblings as well. But that's an aside. So here's the thing. You are almost never going to go to a synagogue that says, we do not want to be welcoming, right? You are never going to step foot in the JCC that says, welcoming, that is not a value we share. Any synagogue, any JCC, any Jewish organization, federation, et cetera, et cetera, will probably have welcoming as something that they aspire to. But there's actually a tremendous slip between the cup and the lip when it comes to how to actually have people feel welcomed, right? To say in a congregation, we welcome Jews of color, but not to reflect that by having Jews of color up on the bima is not actually welcoming, Right To say in a JCC, we welcome interfaith couples, but then if you have a kid in a preschool who was also baptized to have the teacher say, oh, no, 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 well, you're not really Jewish anymore, that's not welcoming. And so when I t- and t- don't even get me started on Israel-Palestine stuff, right? So when, we t- when I talk about radical welcoming, I mean welcoming until it hurts you a little bit, right? Welcoming until you really are the, the people in charge, the board members, the, the professionals are feeling distinctly uncomfortable with what's happening in their four walls. That is some of the hardest, most important work I think the Jewish community uh, can do. 
I mean, that sounds uh, really profound. Um, you know, do you, find, do you find that that is something that, that congregations and organizations really struggle with? Because um, like you said, it is a value. And, and as a follow-up, maybe as we look at the, the rubber meeting the road of Jewish communal security, I know yeah. for sure that that yeah. is an issue about having, even you know from, from left to right, right to left in a Chabad house where they're supposed to have no walls, they are a very visible target. Yep. How do you let people in the door when people are taking hostages in, in synagogues? And what do you, you know, a question for both of you, like how do we square that circle? Do you want to start, Josh, or do you want? No, Rabbi, as usual, I'd rather that you started. <laughs> I... <laughs> yeah, but you played the attorney general on TV, so I mean, he had staff members who told him what to say. I could weigh in fictionally first, but, but Rabbi, you go first. I'm a proud graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, and one of the things that we learn in Reconstruction—I don't know what it's called anymore—reconstructing Judaism, whatever it's called—is about values clarification work, which is that we all want to be all the things. We all want to be welcoming. We all want to be secure. We all want to be whatever, all the things. But that at a certain point of the day, the rubber will hit the road and you'll need to actually decide, like, what is more important? Is security more important than being welcoming, right? And if you decide that security is more important than being welcoming, then I would actually, first and foremost, listen to actual security experts, many of whom are saying that Jews are not as endangered as we feel we are because our trauma is triggered. But okay, you might decide that you that putting security, putting police, putting other sorts of uh, uh, barriers out in front of your buildings is more important than welcoming people. And then just own it and claim it. You know, I, uh, the rabbi from Colleyville said something really beautiful, which I'm going to massacre, but he, he basically said he would open the door and offer this the, the hostage taker tea again. He would do it again. So for him, being welcoming is more important than security. And we can't all say that. You know, they're, they're just like different human beings are, are different. But what I, what's important to me is the idea of just saying your truth out loud, because too often we just hope the quiet part's going to go unsaid. Josh, you want to weigh in here? She's good. It's hard to top the rabbi <laughs> or to even yeah. add to. Totally. That's why I, I spent a lot that, of time. You, you asked me saying, why I asked Josh to be on the podcast? Like, this is it right here. Right. That's why I should always go first so she can top me. Every rabbi's dream, right? I spend a lot of the podcast saying, well said. Right. Hey, listen, it's, it's, good, to ha- it's good to have a, a strong co-host. Um, if I could pivot a little bit, it's not so far from the issue of Jewish communal security, but Josh, I know you've uh, filmed videos to prepare Jewish high school students for anti-Israel activity on campus. Um, it's gotten worse I believe we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about, I say, you know, the, the, the right wing of the Republican Party is in bed with, with, uh, with really bad elements. Rich says there's an element in the Democratic Party that's radically anti-Israel and indeed anti-Semitic. We talk a lot about that. So I wanted to say first for you, Josh, what would you say to Jewish kids on campus to get today who want to be both pro-Israel and progressive as most college students are these days? And then, Rabbi, I want to come back around to you because you're you know, a leader in this space as well. I mean, first and foremost, I try to get the simple message out that, that it's possible. It is possible to be pro-Israel and progressive and open and engaged. And I think uh, too many, uh, um, I'll just focus on our quote unquote side, uh, although I don't like referring to things as sides, but a lot of Jewish parents, um, I think, 
present a monolithic front when it comes to issues that are uh, anything but black and white. And I think when we give our kids this sort of black and white, stark view of issues that are absolutely gray and complicated, that today's kids are too sophisticated to buy it. And so what they often, I think, experience is, I've been sold a bill of goods. I can't trust what I've been told about Israel. We even had this as adults, some of us even older adults on this encounter trip, where there was this cognitive dissonance among some. I mean, most of us had considered these issues before and came with a feeling and a desire for nuance. But I remember some people saying, um, and by the way, this trip was done, it's always done in an anonymous fashion so that people from all over the political spectrum and uh, whatever their beliefs or feelings are about Israel can come as long as underlying it all is a love of Israel. Um, but some people said, oh, you know, there's a part of me that almost doesn't want to continue with this trip because the view I had as Israel since I was a kid is going to crumble. But I think we have to let, if we've been sold or given a particular monolithic narrative since we were kids, we have to fight against it. We have to not present the same thing to our own kids. And we have to explain to them that the only way, the only way to take even a small step towards peace is to engage with others and find the people on the other, again, side that also are looking for nuance. And, uh, and I, I think we just have to, we have to give that gift to our kids to uh, allow them and encourage them to live in an uncomfortable uh, area of argument and debate and engagement. I couldn't agree more, Josh. And as a parent and rabbi, I want to come to you in a second. I have an 11-year-old, a 7-year-old, and uh, I have family and my friend, friends who I grew up with who are police officers. And I got asked the question by my 11-year-old, Dad, are the cops the good guys or the bad guys? And I said, Jake, the cops are, by and large, they're the good guys, but you and I have never been thrown up against the wall and never experienced some of the things that people of color may have experienced. So it's really complicated. And that conversation led to a discussion of systemic poverty, to a conversation about education. And I'm hearing this from an 11-year-old, and my mind is like, like getting blown. And I wasn't talking like that as an 11-year-old. So I agree a thousand percent with you, Josh, that we have to really question those narratives that we're brought up with, not that they're all wrong, but that... Life is complicated. Rabbi, uh, to you, though, on this question, what should we be telling our kids going off uh, to school? And then if you could talk a little bit about the Black Lives Matter movement and how it's sort of come to be equated with the Palestinian cause, but not really. Um, we've talked about that with a number of guests uh, on the show as well. And so I don't know if you have a take on that. Um, you know, I'm trying to be the conservative on the show as well as the as the the, the lefty on the show at the same time. So I'm trying here. You're doing a great job, Jared. <laughs> Thank you. You're doing a great job. Um, okay, I was I was gearing up for like an Israel Palestine answer, but I can I can I can make a, a left hand a turn left as it were. I, I do think like the upshot is like we just shouldn't have had kids. <laughs> like you know, we'd have a lot fewer questions in our house if these children make us think. Um, by the way, my, my, my son who is brisk at six and I, he had his brisk <gasps> on the beam at six and I. So, so oh, he is uh, blessed. Hashtag yes, indeed, blessed, indeed. as they say. Hashtag blessed. All right. Sorry. So I, I mean, this is how I was going to start. And um, I pulled up this Facebook post by a Jewish communal leader that was posted a day or two ago. And I think speaks 
very much to uh, one of the problems we have in the Jewish community. I'm just going to read it verbatim, and I'm not going to tell you the gender or the geographic location or anything about the person. It's about the Amnesty International report that calls Israel an apartheid state. I have not read the report. I haven't even read any of the critiques of the report because I just don't want to go there right now. But, uh, But that's what this person's talking about. And it says, for those of you who are struggling, and then in parentheses, he writes, don't. With Amnesty International's claims that Israel is an apartheid state, read this article. So, oh, and they call it a blood libel. Okay, so the part that I want to talk about is the don't. For those of you who are struggling, don't. This idea that, oh, all we need to do when we're thinking about Israel, all we need to do when we're thinking about the movement for black lives is not think about it and it'll all go away, is indeed, this is some of what Josh was talking about, this is a lot of what we were brought up with. And this was actually the brilliance of If Not Now's um, campaign called You Never Told Me. I do think that what we need to teach our children is, number one, as Josh said, complexity. Right. One of the things that really was hard for my kids in this last go around in Israel was the, that all over Instagram, people were posting, it's not complex. It is complex. And I do think everyone should read Daniel Sokach's new book, We Have to Talk About Israel, because I think it is one of the best new books about Israeli history. We have to teach them compassion. There's, that, there's, there's not a lot of that in America today. It's a little bit countercultural. We have to teach them how to listen to each other. There's also not a lot of that in America. And we have to allow them to hold multiple truths at the same time. Is there some overlap in how black people are treated in America and how Palestinians are treated in Israel? Yes, there is some overlap. Is it understandable that many black Americans feel some sympathy for Palestinians? Yes, that is understandable. Does that translate that Israel should not exist, that it's an apartheid state, that it is a profoundly errant endeavor at best? No, that does not necessarily translate. Is Israel in some ways trying to do its best in a very difficult situation? Yeah, in some ways. And we just have to teach all of our kids this is all true. And to say don't is the worst thing. I feel like I'm getting on my sermon box now, so I will end. Please, I mean, preach. I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things about the 140 character or 280 character world that we live in, right, is that complexity gets lost. Uh, the long, the era of long-form journalism is is sadly going away, um, and that that's sad, and it's, it really takes away from the discourse. Um, can we talk about uh, celebrities and celebrity anti-Semitism for a minute? Sure. I know Josh likes to talk about this, um, and and Rabbi, I, I want you to keep us honest, if you could. I'm I'm okay with that. So, Josh, you uh, took a pretty good whack at Mel Gibson about Hollywood basically giving him a free pass when you wrote in The Atlantic. Why do you think that he gets a free pass? Which, I mean, it's basically what you're saying. Why why does that happen? I think it's a combination of things, probably first and foremost, sadly, that the bottom line in Hollywood tends to be money. And if somebody is worth money at the box office, uh, and apparently Mel Gibson still is, uh, then uh, they're going to get more opportunities than somebody who doesn't bring people to the theaters. Um, So in that sense, you know, maybe even more so than on Warner Brothers or any other studio, it would be on the ticket buyers maybe to not support people who 
perhaps are among the worst of us. Um, uh, but I think also, I guess people have short memories. I think also, or I know that uh, celebrity buddies of Mel Gibson's, Robert Downey Jr. and Jodie Foster, prominent among them, made public pleas on his behalf. Look, if I'm going to take a shot at him publicly, I guess someone else can support him publicly. Um, so, I, you know, I disagree strongly with their stances, but they're entitled to say what they want. I think also, sadly, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, happily, there's a lot of allyship going around and mutual support, and somehow Jews often get lost in the mix. And uh, people forget that we're, I think, less than a third of 1% of the world population. And uh, people s often seem to think that we're doing just fine and don't, I guess, read reports like the one that points out that 58% of hate crime last year, religiously directed hate crime, was directed at Jews. Uh, so I you know, given an opportunity to say something, did I think that, you know, I was going to get Mel Gibson canceled? No. Did I think that I was going to shame Warner Brothers into withdrawing its offer for Lethal Weapon 5? No, not really, although I'd like to see it happen. I know it's a studio that is run by uh, a, a Jewish man named Toby Emmerich, whom I know a little bit, and he's a great guy, and uh, I would love to see pressure put on him. You want to write a letter, folks, so he's listening right now? Write a letter to Toby Emmerich at Warner Brothers. Um, again, I think it's probably more the uh, power of the ticket buyer than anything that could uh, uh, make some change, at least in Hollywood. Rabbi, do you think Whoopi Goldberg got a raw deal when she was suspended two weeks from The View for making a mistake that seemed like an honest mistake that is a mistake that lots and lots of people make about Jews being a religion or are we a race or are we some, somewhere in between. There was a great article, by the way, in The Atlantic today about this topic. Uh, but do you think Whoopi got a raw deal? I do. I, but, sounds you know. like you do. Um, but by the way, yeah, yeah. meeting the witness, yeah. Jared, Jared, you are, I could not agree with you more. In fact, I tried to reach out to Whoopi Goldberg to tell her that, but turns out she's not talking to people right now. Um, yeah. I think that I totally, I mean, obviously what she said was wrong. And what she said was hurtful in that it perpetuates not understanding what Jews are. Okay. Turns out we all say stupid crap. We all say stupid stuff, right? And Sometimes we say in incorrect things. And so what's most important is what we do afterwards. And she actually was trying to do tshuva. I mean, for God's sake, the woman had a Holocaust survivor on The View four days before she made that statement. She talked to Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL the day after. She wrote that post. I mean, give her a break. And I'll tell you something. I do not know or have any reason to think she was an anti-Semite before this whole thing went down. But my God, if she's not an anti-Semite now, God bless that woman. The idea that, like, that she got two weeks suspension, I just feel, I feel like it's actually not good for the Jews. I really do. Now. Could I be totally wrong? Could there be a lot that was happening behind the scenes at ABC that she was saying anti-Semitic things that led to her two-week suspension that none of us know about? That could be true. I always try to get full information before I have an opinion. I don't always try to get full information. I know I should always try to get full information, but my gosh. Yeah, I think she got a raw deal. 
Josh, what do you think about Whoopi and, and what happened with her? I want to be more interesting than to say I agree, but I do largely agree. I would, um, okay. I would add that, as the rabbi said, there may be things she has said or beliefs that she has about which I know nothing. What I can say is based on the uh, what I've read and taken in about it, I felt very comfortable making a few jokes at her expense on Twitter. <laughs> I'll cop to that. But to me, right. I wouldn't. I don't think the suspension is helpful because, one, I think we have to be careful about what we call anti-Semitism because there is so much anti-Semitism and we undercut right. uh, what we're fighting for if we see it everywhere. And there's a big difference between ignorance and anti-Semitism. And I think what uh, Whoopi showed was some uh, ignorance in what she said, which she, I think, was then educated about. And if we kept her on the air, maybe she could talk even more about what she's learning right. and, and what she thinks. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say put Mel Gibson on for two weeks because he's an anti-Semite. And I think we need to be able to distinguish between people who need to learn. And, and again, if people were suspended for ignorance um, all the time, I'd, I'd be on permanent suspension myself. <laughs> <laughs> So, Rabbi, you co-host a podcast with somebody who, has, as a political, you know, careerist, uh, I consider a legend because he's worked, you know, he's been in everything back to American President and uh, Scandal and, and West Wing and Sports Night, right? Uh, what is your favorite Josh Molina role slash, slash series? Really putting her on the spot. No, 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 no. This is a. I can write it on a piece of paper and hold it up now. (laughs) Now, this might be the most important question that you've asked, Jared, because I'm not going to answer for me. I'm going to answer for my 14 year old daughter, Natalia, who is entirely uninterested in Will Bailey. She is entirely uninterested in David Rosen. I'm a Will Bailey. So far, sounds like both of my kids. Yes. But Josh had one episode on Grey's Anatomy. And to Natalia Stutman Shaw, that is, he's done. He's basically like Hashem to her now because of that one episode on Grey's Anatomy. And so, I don't know. For me, it's hard to choose. I think he was great on Shameless, but for Natalia, it was Grey's. Okay. Josh, did you ever do Law & Order? I did. I, uh, I've done Law & Order. I feel like every actor in Hollywood has done Law & Order. Law & Order SVU, I did. Okay. Okay. SVU. All right. Um, so wait, Josh, I have a, I have a question about your TV career. If you would indulge me a moment. Um, what's it like working with both with two legends in the TV space in Aaron Sorkin and Shonda Rhimes, right? Like that's by the way, shout out to my wife, Hildy Keurig Bernstein, because that was her question when we were talking last night over dinner. She's like, ask him who, who he liked, you know, the differences between working with those two legends. Yeah. I mean, I, First, I'll say that I've had an incredibly fortunate career, particularly because of those two people who have been very good to me and loyal to me. And Aaron gave me every break I've had on stage, on TV, and in film. And that has led to other huge breaks, like working for Shonda multiple times, because I think, not I think, I know that she is a big fan of Aaron's. And I believe I came to her attention through shows uh, like Sports Night and The West Wing. Um, so yeah, first of all, very, very fortunate without those two people. I don't know what my career would be like or what I'd be doing. Um, I might be an actual lawyer or working in politics and doing something (laughs) substantive with my life if it were not for those two. But, uh, there are certainly similarities because they both write dialogue dense 
fast paced shows. And so each of them, if you show up and they write primarily hour long shows and the script normally would be, I don't know, I think 50 or 60 pages and a Shonda Rhimes and an Aaron Sorkin page or 70 or 80 pages. And so you have to be able to speak very quickly <laughs> if you're going to uh, get in uh, under the gun. So fast, smart characters um, and both of them in different ways tonally are interested in the uh, uh, political process in the United States. So Josh, something I've always wondered uh, at the end of the last season of West Wing, at the beginning of the fir- of the beginning of the last season, you see them coming to open the presidential library. And you're not sure who actually is the president. And that's the whole, the last season. Um, and you see Kate Harper and Will Bailey there. Um, are they married? That's a very good question. Or like you're led to believe they, they, they end up together, but like there's some weirdness at the end. Do you think they end up together? Very, very interesting question. This is where like, you know, talking to a hardcore fan would probably be more fruitful than talking to someone who was involved in the show. Because once I got my <laughs> final paycheck, I stopped thinking about the West Wing. But um, <laughs> I think uh, I think not. I think those two crazy kids tried to make it work. And uh, I, I don't think it happened ultimately. He, he's a congressman from Oregon. She's a national security thought leader. Yeah, they're both doing we well. They're both doing well. They may, they probably follow each other on Facebook. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Um, Rabbi, what do you think about, and this is the last substantive question, and then we're going to have a couple of lightning round questions uh, where we really get to the talkless here. But <laughs> Rabbi, what do you make of this idea of actors playing people who they aren't ethnically, right? Helen Mirren catching a lot of heat, a lot of people talking about her playing Golda Meir. And where are we? And then, Josh, I want to hear your take. But first, I want to hear the, the rabbi's take. Always go to the pulpit first. What, what do you make of this idea? It's just not my battle. You know what I mean? Okay. As long as Josh Molina can keep on getting roles. And I'm not. I understand why some people... I know. Well, so of that, so if you're, Helen Mirren, you're not going to get you're not going to get gold in my ear, Josh. I mean, so... So if Josh starts being overlooked, then I'll take it on. But for right now, I just feel like we have other things to fry. And call, as Josh said earlier, calling anti-Semitism at every turn, it might be. I don't know. But it, it could get us in trouble at some point. Should Is it weird that Midge Maisel is not p- played by a Jew? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it makes sense because there are no Jews in Hollywood. So who would they get to play her? It's weird. <laughs> is it like, is this something I'm going to take, go to the mat on? No. Fair enough. Josh, what do you think? Well, I mean, my inclination as an actor is to say the ultimate, you know, where the metal meets the road is, is the person uh, convincing? Are they good? What's the, if I didn't know this person's background or ethnicity or religion, am I enjoying, am I believing the performance? Because that's what actors do. You know, the idea that we've got. You played a great wasp in Will Bailey. I assume he was a wasp. Yes, not Jewish. They had already met the quota on the show with Josh Lyman and Toby Ziegler, so I couldn't be Jewish. And actually, there was a moment when Aaron Sorkin, uh, telling me about adding me to the show, did get very serious and said, hey, look, the character is not going to be Jewish. And I was like, do you think that's a deal breaker for me? (laughs) you're, You're offering me a job. I don't care. (laughs) Um, so but as an actor my instinct is to say anyone can play anything that's what we do we play other people we play uh, other characters um but this whole question dovetails with um uh, another issue which is representation and diversity and whether uh, uh you know the makeup of society is being reflected in the people who get the jobs so i definitely do agree that 
in terms of the content of the stories that we're telling, that has to change. And I think we're making, Hollywood is making slow glacial progress. And I think also uh, hiring a, a diversity of people to play roles is something to be wished. When it comes to Jewish characters, I generally have strong feelings about whether I buy it or not. Um, but I don't feel offended when uh, I see a Jewish character played by someone who isn't Jewish and they're great. <laughs> you know, so I, I get the Dame, Hel- Dame Helen Mirren can play who she wants. Well, my guess is I'm going to watch her gold in my ear and say that was a great performance. And, and so I don't right, think I'll right. be uh, upset by her casting. Fair enough. All right. Um, so on to the the fun questions, and then uh, I think we're going to wrap up because you guys have been awesome and really generous with your time, and we really appreciate you guys being with us. And we look forward to uh, sharing listeners with Chutzpod, um, which folks should be downloading today and liking it and sharing it and doing all those other things. But by the I way, wanted to I, say, say, I wanted um, to ask. I just quickly, I want to say a doff of the kippah to you because. This hasn't been the most comfortable conversation, and that's sort of our mission statement on our show, like to ask difficult questions and to ask of each other. And, uh, so, you know, I woke up early and I thought, oh, I'm just going to breeze through this podcast. And the stuff you're asking uh. requires thought and nuance. And so I think we are simpatico when it comes to what we're trying to do in a podcast. Well, todah um, so, uh, what is your favorite Jewish foods? We know Josh likes Gribbenes, um, but Rabbi, if we could start with you and Josh, Gribbenes can't be your answer, by the way. So I'm going to give okay. you a minute to think about it. I think about but, it. Uh, Rabbi, what's your favorite Jewish food to indulge in? The truth is, it's it's anything cooked by Vered Gutman, the mm-hmm. uh, chef yes, from Sixth yes. and I, famous, also cooked for the Obamas. Anything she cooks is my favorite Jewish food. Yeah, she's she's incredible, and her, and her husband is a quite a talented journalist as well, Nathan. That's right. That's right. Uh, great people, Josh. Over to you. Well, since I can't go with Gribbenius, the Jewish answer to pork rinds, which would be my normal uh, number one choice, I'm going to go with anything. Just I, th- I like things like cholent. I like where you throw stuff oh, yeah. in a pot and you wind up with something thick that sticks to your ribs. Uh, uh, so I guess I'm a big, you know, Ashkenazi heavy food eater right josh next time you're in new york i will make you my seven hour brisket it will it will stick with you for days right on um <laughs> i will say uh there's another food both of you i will I, I open offer to take you to gottlieb's deli in williamsburg they make something called a pastrami kanish <sighs> which is a potato kanish with a core of pastrami which is it's like a once a year kind of food well, um, while we're on specific right. shout outs or shouts out yes as i believe the correct plural please um, Izzy's Barbecue in Brooklyn. Have you gone to that? Oh, Izzy's not less than a mile from my house. Amazing. Oh, my God. I went there and had one of the great meals of my life because, you know, I've, I've, I've never had real barbecue. And all of a sudden, there's this incredible kosher barbecue place. And I think Izzy's is now in Miami, and they're opening up all over the place. And, I, 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 oh, I can't wait to eat there again. We should do a we should do a live pod from Izzy's. You know they go to the the New York barbecue competition every year, and they beat the trafe joints when it comes to brisket and like and like chicken. They beat them for like the gold medal. All right, next question: favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And profanity is totally acceptable if it's in another language. Well, I've got a couple on the profanity level. It's okay. get cocking off and yam, go shit in the sea which I guess that's English. I was supposed to keep it a Yiddish. Um, no, no, it's okay. It's great. And then I love the word schwach. Schwach, which means like, <laughs> eh, it's not what it should be. You know, 
this chicken soup is a little schwach. It doesn't have the flavor. You, I can't even, I don't really know how to define it exactly, but it's not, not quite all there. It was the offering. How was lunch? A close closing cousin to schlech. Schlech. Sure. <laughs> schlech. Rabbi. I just feel like uh, Yiddish is a language that is entirely filled with onomatopoeia. Like every single word sounds like what it means. But the word that I've been using a lot since Chutzpah started is to shmai around. Right? Like to shmai around. Is, I don't even know if it's really Yiddish. But like Josh and I just shmai around a lot. I don't know if it's shmai or spry. Uh, okay, and, see, it's... I'm, and my mother is going to be listening, and I'm sure I will get a text message from her to correct my Yiddish, um, okay. to spry around. Josh, who is your favorite political figure of all time, real? And then, Rabbi, who is your favorite political figure of all time, fictional? Well, I'm going to try to skirt both issues, because you can decide real or fictional by choosing Moses. <laughs> Ooh. But, you know, I don't know if there's archaeological evidence of Moses actually having lived, but I think he was real, and uh, he's my Jewish leader of Christ. I just finished Mel Brooks's biography, and he, you know, in History of the World, when Moses comes down and he has, <laughs> and I gave you these 15, and then he drops one, 10 commandments, one of the <laughs> best pits of Jewish comedy of all time. Rabbi... I was weaned on the 2,000-year-old yeah, man. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Mr. Brooks, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on J.I. or Chutzpah, I'm assuming, or we could do a joint episode if Mel Brooks is willing to grace us with, with his presence. He's a real, yeah. a real treasure to our people. Rabbi, go. Can I answer for a real person? Yeah, that's, that's what I want. I mean, the, the best political leader of all time, in my opinion, Henry Waxman. Um, it's the office, the congressional office where I met my husband. It was oh. a congressional office that was famous for being able to fix people up and partner up. So like, you know, the entire staff of Henry Waxman's office is going directly to heaven because there were so many fix-ups made. You know, I, so to me, one of the most important figures, certainly in my life. He was my congressperson for years. See? Did, did, and you know, he and Chuck Schumer are ridiculously competitive about who can set up more <laughs> couples. Whenever, whenever you see the Democratic leader, because I have many, many friends uh, and many, many colleagues who spent time in Schumerland, he will say, see, like, I'm, I'm, I'm gaining on you. And he's like very, very competitive, as he is with most things, about how many couples uh, he, can, he can fix up. Rabbi Shia Stutman, Josh Molina, thank you so much for joining the pod today. This is a great time. We look forward to having you guys back soon. Super fun. Thanks for having, Thanks us. For having us, Jared. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is the Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.